I was in bed and the first rocket went off and hit the building next to ours. So I got up like any normal tick, got up, put my equipment on and got to the door. And I open the door and look outside and all I see is muzzle flashes. We got a call on the radio that someone was hit in the Shura building, which is about 50 meters or so from the aid station. So uh, Chris Cordova, the PA, threw me my aid bag and I ran out. We had a lot of ANA casualties flowing through. That's when First Sergeant Burton came in and said that there was enemy in the wire. Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. In this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi speaks with Master Sergeant Shane Corville. Ten years ago, in 2009, he was a medic deployed at Combat Outpost Keating in Afghanistan. On October 3rd of that year, he woke up to the sound of gunfire, and in the long hours that followed... Cop Keating would become the scene of one of the most intense battles of the entire war in Afghanistan. This is a really powerful episode, in part because his perspective, being a medic during a fight in which half of the soldiers at the cop were wounded, is something that is almost indescribable without hearing it firsthand. But also because Master Sergeant Corville and Major Moraldi, who spoke to him for this episode, know each other. In fact, they were both there that day. Major Moraldi was part of the quick reaction force that was sent to the cop to help. I really hope listeners enjoy this opportunity to hear a combat medic's combat story. Before we get to it, though, just a couple notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we would love it if you could take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Major Jake Moraldi and Master Sergeant Shane Corville. Master Sergeant Corville, thank you for coming up. I apologize to our listeners right off the bat uh, if I use Shane instead of Master Sergeant Corville kind of periodically throughout. Uh, Shane and I worked together when we were in 361 and what, 12, 11, 12, 13? About. Yes. Uh, so I probably will, will dip into that a little bit. Uh, but Shane was also the senior medic at Cop Keating for the Battle of Camdash Cop Keating attack. Um, so to start, give us a little kind of background about yourself and your experience on that deployment and kind of what the context leading up to the battle looked like from your perspective. Okay. Um, at the time of Cop Keating, I was on my fourth deployment. Uh, had just PCS to Fort Carson. And uh, yeah, I was there about a month before we deployed to uh, Camdesh, Afghanistan. So you guys had been there, you got there the summer of 09, right? Kind of June. I got, I flew in 30 May, okay. 2009. Yep, so June. So in October, when the Battle of, of Camdesh actually happened, you guys had been there, you know, four or five-ish months. What was your experience like at Cop Keating, like, kind of leading up to October? Uh, Keating was a very kinetic area. A few times a, a week, we'd get attacked. Um, hindsight, I think they were trying to set some stuff up. But uh, we'd get attacked regu regularly. Um, very poor-ish living conditions. 
infrequent resupplies, uh, amenities in and out. Um, but besides that, it was a very beautiful area, very mountainous, with a nice class five rapids between us and the mountains. So what was the, being the senior medic, what was kind of the medical situation there, right? You had a PA, yep. you had yourself, kind of what was the, the medical setup? At we had your classic role one setup. So uh, PA, uh, myself, and then I had three medics with the line medics with Bravo Troop. Uh, we ran a one bed clinic with overflow on the back porch of the aid station. Uh, we were fairly well stocked uh, with a little bit of everything. So we were pretty well versed in what we could handle. Yeah, so how had you been treating a lot of casualties? Had you taken many casualties up to, up to that uh, point? We had taken a few. Um, we took one the day we showed up and then Jacobs got hit a month or so in. But then we treated a lot of kids, uh, local kids in the area. Yes. And burns and breaks and the the classic. Okay, so not a lot of combat no. injuries really up to that point. No, only combat injuries were the the two, three, one Afghani and then Jacobs and the kid that got hit the first day we were there. Okay. So on October third, right? It's early in the morning. You know, I imagine the day kind of starts like any other day, at least kind of early, but then you know, the battle kicks off, mm -hmm. right? And it's what, 5, 5.30 in the morning when the battle kicks off? 5.50-ish, I think is what the, the survey or the report says. So what's your thought when the actual fighting sort of starts at that 5.50, 5.45? So I was in bed and the first rocket went off and hit the building next to ours. So I got up like any normal tick, got up, put my equipment on and got to the door and I open the door and look outside and all I see is muzzle flashes. So the entire back wall of the cop was just muzzle flashes. And with the rate of fire that we were under, I knew it was bigger than what we were, we were used to. Yeah. So it's not a normal tick necessarily. No, it, looks it like is something different. It is definitely different. It's a very high, high rate of fire from multiple sides. And then it was machine gun, rockets, RPGs, mortars, just a, a barrage of everything and very, very steady. Yeah. So you're, you get up, you're at the door of the, the area you live in. Mm -hmm. I mean, how far is the aid station? Like, how do you gotta, how do you gotta get yourself over there? Well, I lived in the aid station. So my bed was in the backside of the aid station. Okay. So you don't have to move anywhere. It's just the initial burst, basically. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything about casualties. What are you guys doing to prep or kind of prepare yourself uh, in that initial, you know, couple of minutes of the attack? Well, we had a pretty, pretty good SOP on when we got attacked. You know, we get set up, get the door open so people could just flow in. I staged myself at the door like I always did to uh, triage casualties as it came through, and then we waited. Not very long, but we waited. Yeah. So your role in this, right? You have the PA who, in theory, is doing a lot of the, the sort of higher level treatment. Right. You have lower ranking medics, I'm assuming, who are doing some of the other yep. less urgent 
uh, treatment to folks and you're mm -hmm. doing a lot of the, the triage stuff yeah. at the door? I did most of the, the triage and then getting whatever resupplies they needed to keep them working. So normally the, the PA would have the patient and then as the, the two line medics would show up, they would take the other sides of the patient. So you said it didn't take too, too long for casualties to start flowing in. Yeah, so about 10-ish minutes into it, um, we got a call on the radio that someone was hit in the Shura building, which is about 50 meters or so from the aid station. So uh, Chris Cordova, the PA, threw me my aid bag, and I ran out to the Shura building. Um, I got up there, and in uh Josh Kirk was hit, so I stripped him of his gear, put a pressure dressing on the back of his head, and we loaded him up on the litter and brought him back to the aid station. Yeah, so he's the first one, and, and you hand him off to Doc Cordova, yeah. and, and he's working on him. So I get him, we get him back to the aid station, and then it was kind of funny because all my guys are taking a knee, and I was like, what are you all doing? And uh, Cody Floyd, one of, he was Blue's medic. He looks at me, he's like, Sir Corville, we just got hit with a rocket. And I was like, what the fuck do you mean you got hit with a rocket? He's like, yeah, an RPG just hit the door. He's like, me and Jeff are both wounded. And I was like, when in the fuck did this happen? So after I checked out Cody to make sure and Jeff to make sure that they were good, uh, we started working on Josh. As we were working on Josh, uh, Eric brought in Scusa. So... Jeff, Cody, and Chris were working on Josh as I went and checked out Scusa, and he was expired by the time he got to us. Uh, we worked on Josh for a good little bit until we realized there wasn't anything we could do, and our our supply and demand was definitely uh, out of whack, and we had to move on to treating other people. Yeah, so those first two guys come in, and you, you, know, you have Scusa who... There's kind of nothing you can do for right, and eventually, uh, Kirk. Right, you kind of decide that there's nothing because I imagine there's starting to be a, a heavier flow of casualties coming in. Yeah, we had a lot of ANA casualties flowing through. That's when First Sergeant Burton came in and said that there was enemy in the wire. So we split our forces between security and treatment. Uh, but yeah, at one point we had. After Josh, we had four or five Afghan ANA soldiers come in to be treated. So I think that's an important thing to highlight here is so guys are inside the wire quickly, right? Fairly yes. quickly. And the aid station, if I remember correctly, is, is a little removed from it was other on, things, right? The it's, aid station was on the, where y'all came in to set up yep. where you, on the ANA side. We were right on that Hesco wall. That's right right next to the talk. Okay. So we were part of the perimeter. Yeah. So did you guys have to establish your own security or where did you feel comfortable with the security uh, that was nearby? We set up our own internal and then there is uh Sergeant Hill and Blue Platoon was outside of the aid station, but we did set up our own internal, covered uh, the two doors. Yeah. And that's with the line medics and yourself. And yeah, we had the one combo guy and then we had, uh, one of the mechanics was injured, so we had him pulling security. Yeah. So you have at least two Americans at this point. You have a bunch of Afghans. Mm -hmm. There are guys in the wire. Yes. I mean, what are you thinking at this point? Like, what's sort of your your thought process 
as you're trying to do triage, you're trying to treat people, and you're trying to pull security and It was just trying to figure out what we were going to need and trying to anticipate what else we were going to have to do. Um, we worked in that for a while, and then we realized once Mace was getting ready to come in, once we got the radio call that Mace was coming in, we, need, we figured we needed to declutter the aid station. So we went and made coordinations to move the ANA to a building that was secured to have them there because there wasn't anything else we could do for them. And then we had moved the American wounded to the other location, the talk location, to keep them there so we had space. At that point, we still had uh, the ANA dude we called Rocket Man because he was always stoned and uh, he carried a <laughs> RPG with him. So we had him with a gunshot wound to the leg. We moved him out to the back porch and set up our secondary treatment on the back porch. We had the Afghan dude with the abdominal evisceration, which I don't know how he lived. He stayed there. We moved him in the same spot and it opened it up for Mace to come in. Okay. So you have, I'm, I'm doing the count in my head now, at least seven or eight casualties yes. of, of varying severity across two or three different locations. Yes. And you're still trying to treat and do triage and, and all that. Right. Um, so Mace comes in and, and now you have a whole nother casualty that you're trying to triage and treat. Kind yeah. of what did, talk me through that. So that we got process. Mace. Um, we got him in. We stripped him what he was wearing. We replaced any place he had a tourniquet. We, uh, we replaced that. Let's put it a little bit higher than took the other one off. Um, then we started pumping him with any fluids we could get, and he didn't have shit for a vein, so we couldn't do a, an AC stick. You know, anytime, like, we treated this kid like a pincushion. He had absolutely zero veins at that point, so we were just doing everything we could to poke him. Um, we ended up getting him with an IO and a sternum, so we ran a couple, we ran a bag of hex stand through there, and then... Uh, uh, after we ran that bag, that site dried up. We couldn't get any more fluids in there. Um, so at one point, I managed to get an AC stick on him. And I was so proud of myself. I was all happy. And then he came out from being unconscious, grabbed the, the IV line and ripped it out. And I was highly perturbed at that point. <laughs> so um, we knew we had to get another line into him because if not, we would have been screwed. So... Uh, Jeff stuck him with a, an EJ, your external jugular. So we, that's the line we got into him and that stuck. Um, as that was going on, the talk across the, the street, for lack of better terms, caught on fire. So we had to keep the fire from spreading from the talk to the aid station. So uh, we didn't know if that was going to be able to happen. So we had a plan to move mace to the mortar pit if the aid station was to catch on fire. So I loaded a bunch of aid bags. I finally got dressed for the day. Uh, loaded a bunch of aid bags with anything we could possibly dream of needing. Um, and then just stayed waiting to see what was gonna happen. 
Yeah, so I'm just, again, trying to paint the whole picture here. So the talk is on fire, kind of like you said, across the street from the aid station. You have, you know, approaching double-digit casualties. And there's a concern that we're going to have to jump the aid station yes. somewhere. Yes. While there are people in the wire and there's active fighting inside the physical walls of, of the cop. Yes. Um, so... Again, you, you talked about thinking about the next thing. There's a lot of next things mm -hmm. to be thinking about. I mean, how, how do you unclutter? How did you kind of unclutter yourself to focus on, right, all right, now I'm doing treatment. All right, now I'm fucking loading aid bags. All right, now I'm pulling security. Uh, like, what, what was that? What was that like? I don't remember. Um, yeah? It was just a lot of, a lot of assumption a lot of hoping and then a lot of using prior experiences and using prior training to know what you're going to need or guessing what you're going to need. Um, and then to make matters even worse, we had packed the aid station because we were getting ready to close down the fob in a few days. So we had ended up packing the aid station the day before. So nothing was where it was supposed to be. So there was a lot of just one step at a time just one task to the next. Yeah. So you're still trying to treat Mace. You got the line in, in his neck. And I imagine more casualties are kind of coming in fast and furious mm -hmm. at this point. Um, kind of talk me through the, the next step of this for you. All right. So about that time, me and Chris Cordova, we sat down and we're like, we we're, we're at options. Like, we couldn't give him any more hex then. He's already had two bags. There was n loading him with fluids is just going to dilute the Kool-Aid of the blood. So you're at that point, you're just looking for anything that we could use. So me and Chris were talking. He's like, wasn't there a blood transfusion kit in here? I was like, yeah, we threw it away yesterday. And he looks at me. He's like, well, shit, we could use that. And I was like, Chris, yesterday was Friday, right? He's like, yep. I was like, Afghans don't work on Friday, right? He's like, yep. So I ran out and found the trash bags of all the shit that we'd thrown away the day before. So I came back and we uh, dumped out the trash bag and found the blood transfusion kit that we had uh, thrown away the day before. Um, so we looked at that and looked at the directions and we knew, we found Mace's dog tags, which he was A-positive. Jeff, Cody, and Chris were all A-positive. So we figured, again, this was a gamble, a very, very big gamble. You know, we're assuming that everyone's dog tags were right. We're assuming that there was a lot of assumptions to hopefully this was going to work. So we started with Cody's and then so we took Cody's blood, we took the, the uh, 450 cc's or whatever it is, we took a bag out, took that from Cody, and then hooked it up to Mace's bag, and then we ran that bag through, and as soon as that bag was through, he came out of, con like, he regained somewhat conscious, he could have a somewhat of a conversation as he was asking for a cigarette, <laughs> and that was the only thing he asked for, and uh, we just... You know, we gave him that bag, and then once that bag was through, you know, we could see he was improving, so we knew it was working. So then 
gave it a little bit and then he started to deteriorate again. So then we took Jeff's was the next one and then we did Chris. So we did three bags while we were in the aid station. At that point, I ran to Bundy to find out how long air was going to be. And uh, he said probably at least two hours because I think you were bounding down by that point. Yeah, I think I think by this point, what time is it in the day? Shit, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we, we were on our way down, but we were a long way out. Three still. to four-ish, yeah, give so or take. We, yeah, we were still a ways out. Yep. So I grabbed first Aaron's, uh I Love Me book or his, uh, his leader's book and started going, going by to find out whoever was A positive. And again, at this point, we're taking a huge gamble on dog tags being correct. And uh, we took Bundy's for the next bag. And then when you showed up, I was taking, I don't remember the kid's name, but I was taking the- Yeah, you took a couple of my guys. Yep. So I correctly. took some more blood and then we packaged him up to get him ready to fly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, we talked about this a second ago. That was one of my most vivid memories of, of our experience as the QRF coming down was that was the first thing we heard from you guys sort of right at the top of the switch back. The first thing we heard come over the net was basically, does anyone have a positive blood? Um, I was like, Oh shit. All right. I, I now have a good feel for where we're at, at the cop here that we're running out of blood. And, and that was a, you know, mace, in the sort of, I feel like it was in the makeshift talk area when I went in to try and find First Sergeant mm -hmm. and Bundy and Case and Schrode. That w I remember seeing him laying there, just getting blood like pumped mm -hmm. into him, like arm to arm from somebody it looked like. Close, yeah. yeah. That When you came in, uh, it was when I was taking that leader from, I forget who the kid's name was, yeah. but we were taking it from him because yeah. you came in. Yep. You did your West Point football high five to Casey That's Schrode, right. and then uh, I went back to the aid station. Yeah. And then at that point, we knew because that was our trigger. Once you showed up, push out to the LZ so we could get birds in. Yeah. yeah. So in addition to Mace, there's obviously a bunch of other casualties. Yeah. What What are the numbers we're talking about as the you know as the attack starts to break up a little bit? Mm -hmm. Us as a QRF, we're kind of getting close, and, and we're starting to break stuff up on the south side of the hill. Um, I mean, what are your casualties number looking like? And grand total, or what we? Yeah, at? I mean, grand grand total. Grand total at the end of the day, and this includes the what we treated when we got back to Bostic a few yeah. days later. It was twenty seven injuries, yeah. but I think we evac eight is what we evac, yeah. if I remember correctly. But everything else we just sat on because we couldn't lose that many people. So it was light shrapnel wounds or mm -hmm. grazing gunshot wounds. So anything we could sit on, we sat on for the next few days. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm just trying to, for the listeners, kind of get people to wrap their head around like the sheer numbers that that is. It, and right, as a line infantry company, my, my company had, you know, 140 people. Mm -hmm. The cav troop, you know, has 80-ish people, e but at the cop, there's only, what, about 50? 53. Yeah, 53. So, I mean, you have 50% wounded casualties on, on the cop. Um, and you guys have been doing the medical thing with limited resources, things on fire, enemy in the wire, right? All, all this stuff happening at the same time. <clears throat> so, 
in the, in the aftermath, kind of looking back on it, what do you think made you guys successful? Because, I mean, I think it's without a doubt you guys were as successful as you could possibly mm -hmm. be given the situation. Um, so what allowed you to be as successful as you were? I think our ability to work as a team was probably the best. And uh, Chris was very an extremely talented PA. Um, I had shit-hot medics that knew what they were doing and didn't have to be asked to do anything. They knew what to do. We had very good SOPs on how we how we did everything. You know, you, everything was pretty much textbooks, how we ran triage. Our MassCal plan was okay, and I can get into that later. Um, and then just the ability to think outside the box and think ahead of what we were doing at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, talk to me about your MassCal plan, right? Because that's something that, that I don't think, at least here at, at West Point with our cadets, that they get a good feel for is they take a lot of casualties during summer training sometimes, um, but we don't articulate in a meaningful way all the intricacies of what a plan like that has to have. Okay, um, so, so talk to me about what, what your guys' MassCal plan was. My MassCal plan, I took what I thought, which is where ignorance completely completely bit me in the ass but my worst case scenario on what i thought would have been would have been mortar indirects going to the living space sure. that was what i thought was the worst case scenario sure. so that's what i planned off from so we had litters and cls bags throughout the the clinic or throughout the uh, the fa or cop we had an overflow because we could only fit one patient in the aid station itself. So we had a space outside that could hold two more patients. And then we also had the Shura building, which was as a CCP, which thinking back on it, it was about two meters off the ECP. So it wouldn't have worked as a casualty collection point. So I, when I went and made this plan, never in a million years did I think worst case scenario was 300-ish dudes attacking 53. So if I was to do it again, I probably would have beefed up where it was. I would have beefed up the mortar pit because they were isolated and could easily be cut off from the rest of the, uh, the rest of the cop. Um, and now with all the stuff that Chris has done for whole blood transfusion, now blood transfusion kits with blood typing cards are standard in a, a roll one set. So because of what we were able to do, change army medicine as a whole. Yeah. So I have to ask, on our 2012 deployment, mm -hmm. you also had a MassCal incident. <laughs> yes. Um, a little bit different circumstance, but a lot of casualties at, uh, at Finley Shield. So how did, how did your experience at, at Keaton kind of prepare you to do that MassCal? Um, I was completely unfazed by that one. Um, I definitely took my lessons learned from the Keating MassCal plan um, and put it towards that one. Um, I, I, 
knew that that kind of attack was likely, and especially in that location. Um, so yeah, I was very well suited for that one because <laughs> we'd already done it before. Yeah. So that one was different, and it was a lot of the same. There was a fire, and there was, but there was less fighters, but a lot of injuries. So again, triage, and then remaining flexible and moving with the plan. And yeah. So. I think that's as, as good a place as I need to close it down. I think the, the medical side of the cop Keating story, at least around this place, does not get told in, in as meaningful a way. Um, like you said, it's a lot of what you guys did had to influence on Army medicine as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's some value in talking about it. Uh, uh, yeah, so I appreciate it, Shane. Thanks yeah. for talking to us. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. One last thing before you go. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.